1: PUTT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the podcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director for Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. And we are now in our third year of the podcast. Thank you to everyone who listens and supports us. We're kicking off the year uh, with some really exciting guests. I I couldn't be happier to have the the two advocates on today uh, who are. I'd like to first start by introducing Brian Nyquist. He is the president of the Infusion Access Foundation and president and CEO for the National Infusion Center Association. Brian, say hello.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: It's really, really glad you're here. Brian and I had occasion last year to speak with some folks over at Pfizer and that's where we first met and started talking about how very much we do not like pharmacy benefit managers. And also added to that conversation, uh, Julie Hoffman. She's the advocacy chair for the American Diabetes Association of Arizona. She is on the Leadership Council for the Arizona Diabetes Coalition. And Julie is also the mother of a type one diabetic. So she's really lived this. Julie, welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Monique. Really, really, really glad you're here too. Uh, The three of us, so for everyone who's listening, Yesterday here in Phoenix we had the occasion to have a, a a PBM 101 event for some members of our of our legislature our session just kicked off this week and it was a powerful opportunity to bring everybody who's been affected by the presence of PBM middlemen together to share their stories and to talk about what's been happening and it was a, a really powerful event and and uh, both Julie and Brian, you were both speaking and I thought it would be so fantastic to have you both be here and share a little bit about you know what, what we did yesterday and what we talked about, but before we do that, I think it would be just really good for the audience to know a little bit about each of you. Brian, can I start with you? Maybe have you introduce yourself and, and tell us about the Infusion Access Foundation and also the National Infusion Center Association?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the National Infusion Center Association is a nonprofit trade association formed to support and represent the nation's community-based infusion care settings uh, that represent a safe, more efficient, more cost-effective alternative to hospital care settings for provider-administered specialty medications like biologic medications. Uh, And the Infusion Access Foundation is a nonprofit Uh, Inclusive community and advocacy voice for the people that currently rely on or will eventually depend on these types of medications to manage the physical, emotional, and financial burdens of complex chronic disease.
0: So you have, it sounds like a a patient focus in the Infusion Access Foundation. And then on the other side, is that a a patient slash provider focused
1: organization? Yes, it's primarily provider and, and sort of trade profession focused. Um, but everything that this channel does is directly tied to the patient. So we we do indirectly support patients through NICA. Uh, but That's why I bifurcated activities into these two organizations. So we've got one voice and brand dedicated to patients and another one that really sort of champions that, that provider uh, side of the value proposition as well.
0: That's fantastic. Really, really, really great. And so, This would be a great opportunity then to introduce Julie. Julie, have you talk a little bit about you and what you do in your roles uh, as the advocacy chair and then also on the Leadership Council for Diabetes here in Arizona?
2: Sure. Well, everybody knows and has heard of the American Diabetes Association and um, kind of had a structure in a number of the states where there was um, a lot of advocacy work and I was uh, selected to be chair a number of years ago and have worked in um, advocacy, especially diabetes advocacy now. I got started 25 years ago. So um, last year was one of those moments walking into a legislative committee and the realization that gosh, 25 years ago this week was the first time I stepped through this exact door um, and and still fighting for some of the same things. Um, and then in Arizona, we have a wonderful organization, the Arizona Diabetes Coalition that is um, kind of under the umbrella of the State Department of Health Diabetes Program, but an incredible group, a statewide group of patient advocacy groups, providers. Um, We have uh, Sonora Quest laboratories, uh, Medicare quality assurance groups, other physicians, community health workers, and uh, a number of other uh, academic organizations. And so an incredible group of people in Arizona and very very fortunate to be able to uh, work and associate with everyone.
0: There definitely seems to be a tight knit community here in Arizona. You and I were talking about that yesterday for the people who are listening in different parts of the country. PUTT is based out of North Carolina. Uh, my office, here's the executive director is in Phoenix. And so for several years, I've been doing the work fighting pharmacy benefit managers along with all the PUTT members, but have only just recently gotten to know some of the, the wonderful people here in my own backyard, like both of you. Uh, I I wanted to ask you both a question. And this came to mind yesterday, actually. So we had a a couple of pediatricians who came and spoke uh, at Brian's invitation. And they said several fascinating things. But one thing I thought was really interesting was they talked about how for a long time, they felt like they've been fighting an invisible enemy. And just until about a couple of weeks ago, they really didn't know that it was, you know, PBMs right in the middle, uh, interfering with treatments that they were prescribing for their patients. And it got me to thinking about when was the first time that you, both of you became aware of PBMs, you know, what, what's, what's your story? How did you, you know, first discover there was this invisible middleman that was, you know, interfering, Brian, maybe start with you and let us know what you, how you first encountered them.
1: Yeah. Well, my story is probably far less interesting than, than most others. I first learned about PBMs in graduate school when I was getting a master's degree in public health and really sort of dissecting um, the healthcare landscape, but more importantly, the insurance landscape and sort of players in that aspect of the drug supply chain, common areas where where consumers get caught up and pigeonholed um, throughout that care continuum. And that's really where I kind of started first learning about um, these pharmacy benefit managers and how that sort of role and the value proposition they initially brought to the supply chain has evolved considerably away from from how they initially got involved.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say you're absolutely spot on about that. So you're one of the lucky people that you learned about this uh, right up front properly and in school. It seems like the thing I always hear, you know, and correct me either of you if I'm wrong, but it seems like I'm always hearing. No one teaches this in school. And I'm like, yeah, they, they really don't. But it sounds like in your case, they did. So you for in a well, good I mean, If you're in a there. school
1: for health policy, yeah, you'll you probably <laughs> cover
0: it. Right, right. That would be helpful. <laughs> Julie, what about you? When was, when was the first time you encountered a PBM? How'd you first find out about them?
2: Well, I actually remember way back in the 90s when um, the early precursor to the modern PBM was really just a claims processor. And that was essentially just a contract out of, you know, healthcare administration. And then my daughter was at a year and a half old, was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And we lived at Tucson at the time. And she was the youngest person at that time to ever have been diagnosed um, in Tucson. And about Two months after her di- diagnosis, I went to pick up a prescription at the pharmacy. She was on four insulins at that time, and uh, we had to mix them into a syringe. And you can imagine, in a toddler, you know how precise uh, half-unit measures in a syringe were. But uh, I got baptized by fire actually when I her brand new prescription was denied, and um, we were asked to pay cash to get that prescription and the only coverage was for another brand so that was my early 1998 I had my first of many non-medical switches and um, that's how I learned I haven't stopped advocating since
0: wow and she was just she was a year old when that happened yes oh my gosh so I can imagine you've had, she's 25-ish now, yeah. that, 26-ish. So you've had that many years of, I'm guessing, having to have that conversation over and over and over. Over and over. I mean, you the, the number of prescriptions
2: that somebody with type 1 diabetes has is, is very long. And all of the supplies each come with their own uh, prescription. And oftentimes um, what happens is we just, people end up paying cash um, and getting something at the drugstore, Costco, um, mail order, whatever, just because it, it's worth the hassle to lose a few dollars rather than run everything through the insurance and never know if you're actually going to be able to get what you and your doctor have found that's best for your treatment plan.
0: Wow, that's so upsetting. If, if you're hearing a dog barking in the background, that's Ivy. And I can tell she does not like what you just said, as I don't like what you just said. We all hate PBMs <laughs> over here in my house. <laughs> but that's, that's mind-blowing. That's, that's really mind-blowing. And I'm thinking about one of the patients who at this PBM 101 yesterday talked about, uh, as a kid, uh, his medications... Uh, running way up and capping out and his dad having to go back and, and basically beg his employer for you know additional assistance inside their health insurance program. Did, did you ever find yourself having to do anything like that?
2: Advocacy wise, um, yes, we never did um, top out. But what I quickly found out, too, even when back when my daughter was a toddler, that before the advent of kind of the the big EHRs that we have now, the electronic health records, we would get flagged for being non-compliant if a prescription wasn't picked up on time. So you know all of that data that gets um, captured and aggregated um, for patients, I learned early on that um, you know the the data that's collected at the point of sale at the pharmacy counter, or not collected because of PBM interference, it has nothing to do sometimes with a patient's willingness to be compliant or adherent to a treatment plan. So those are battles that that we have fought off and on for 25 years. There's nothing like a pediatric endocrinologist asking a four-year-old why something occurred. You know, why, your, why was your blood sugar 458? at 4pm last Tuesday. And what's a four year old going to say, but you know, give that stare to mom or dad in the office. And so those kinds of things are what has uh, fueled this 25 year, and I'm sure it will go on another 25 years.
0: Wow. And you know, you are so knowledgeable about the industry and and you know who who owns who and who's working with who it was one of the things that i was struck by when i first met you uh was how articulate you are on on the business side of things is that because of being flagged for non-compliance and just you know those kinds of things or how did you become so well versed on the business side of pbms um i i learned
2: very early on, I was a, a former federal employee, so I had incredible health insurance, and very fortunate to, to have that. But also, couldn't access care, couldn't access things that were in my mind very black and white of what's covered. What's you know, during open season every fall, I would make sure that my daughter's prescriptions that you know, again, that her doctor ordered for her. Um, that they were covered. And um, time and time again, I would, you know, the new plan started January 1st by March or April, invariably out of maybe one of 12 or so prescriptions that this little toddler had, um, something was non-medically switched, something was no longer covered. Um, You'd get the surprise at the counter and say, well, those, those test strips, that box is going to be $237. Rather than a you know five or ten dollar copay, which which was very common back in the uh, early 2000s, I think we've kind of gotten away of a lot of those five or ten dollar copays. But, um, and I just learned over the years, and I also learned that you know even with patient advocacy organizations and um, you know some connections and and a few names of of people to give a call to when something goes wrong, that. You uh, really do need to get to be your best advocate, and 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 you have to be to kind of survive this game. It's a, it's a, a game of like who sunk my battleship. You know, it's it's very strategic um, to navigate chronic disease um, for a caregiver, for family members, and especially then for patients.
0: I think that's really well said, and that actually gives me then the opportunity to. You know, turn over to you, Brian, because strategy seems like it's something you're involved with at all times. You are also someone who's extremely knowledgeable about the the inner workings of the industry. Um, one of the things that I think you, you know you both have in common is that you both fall into the specialty pharmacy realm in terms of, Brian, I think the medications that uh, the patients from your association use. and then, Julie, I think uh, your daughter is a diabetic, but am I correct? If I remember correctly, she also has some other uh, issues that she's dealing with that kind of also put her into specialty pharmacy medications. Correct.
2: Yes. Rheumatoid arthritis. So Enbrel is our
0: friend. Yeah. So we've often said around PUTT. That there's nothing special about specialty pharmacy. It's just expensive medications. Although I, I had a second thought about that, Brian, listening to you describe how some of these medications are formulated. I wondered if you could take a moment to re-explain that for all of us who weren't there yesterday and then maybe chat a little bit about how PBMs have, you know, infiltrated specialty pharmacy and particularly the impact that it's having on infusion patients.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. For the most part, a lot of specialty drugs aren't really all that special. Um, but there is a category of specialty medications referred as biologics or um, in in regulatory language, therapeutic biological products um, that are very special. Um, these, these medications are kind of the newer generation of therapeutics. And so unlike the oral medications that we're all familiar with, you get a you know, paper script, you go down to your corner pharmacy, you, you fill the script, you get a jar full of pills and, and you take them you know, once a day or one, you know, a couple of times a day. Now, the difference is you, these medications are, are chemical drugs, right? They're commonly referred to in the industry as small molecule. You take a bunch of chemical ingredients, you follow a recipe, you throw them together and you, you create the drug. And so, after patent uh, expires, any manufacturer can basically reverse engineer that recipe, combine all of these different ingredients to create an identical version of that medication that we that we now call generics. Now, the main difference with these biologic drugs is that they're manufactured inside of living cells. So we are taking um, cells like bacteria cells or yeast or. In the case of one of these drugs, it's as sp- specific as an ovarian cell from a Chinese hamster. So we take these different cells, we we hijack their genome, and we program their DNA to, to produce something for us um, that our body, the human body normally, normally produces, or it's similar enough to something that we produce that, that your body assumes that it should be there. And so these proteins that we're making these cells produce are essentially laboratory engineered to do very specific things. So in the context of complex chronic disease, the patients are very familiar with steroids, right? Prenicolone, prednisone, terrible, long-term use, a lot of, lot of issues, a lot of complications. Now, the way that, that these steroids work is they they ablate your entire immune system. So they they basically turn off the light switch. Right, the breaker, the main breaker to your entire house shuts off all of the electricity. These biologics can be programmed to turn off or even dim a very specific bulb in a specific part of the house. Um, so you just turn off that one, that one bulb, that one part of an inflammatory cascade that's causing the underlying disease, particularly in the case of autoimmune disease, when your immune system is attacking itself. So these medications are larger molecules, they're, they're protein based in our digestive tract has evolved to be very effective at digesting protein. So we have to deliver these medications in a way that it bypasses the digestive tract so they can actually work. And the way that we do that is introducing these drugs directly into the bloodstream intravenously or through IV infusion or indirectly into the bloodstream through injection, generally subcutaneous injection where we inject into the skin or intramuscular injection where you're getting that injection into um, muscle tissue of a large muscle group like your bite you know, um, glute, your your quad, etc. So because these medications are large molecule, they're protein-based, they they're very delicate and fragile compared to conventional medications. So much so that there are very specific and explicit handling and preparation requirements for these products to make sure that they don't interact with the body in a way that wasn't intended. For example, a lot of these instructions say, do not shake these vials when you're reconstituting, but instead gently roll on a table for three minutes or put them in a mechanical swirler at 60 revolutions per Per minute for ten minutes, something to that effect. It's it's very specific because if we break any of these proteins, you can't you can't undo that. And if we compromise the integrity of these of these molecules and these medications, your immune system could see those as foreign, it's like an infection, and you launch a huge immune response, which could be uh, life threatening. In the case of these medications, it's like scrambling an egg. Once you scramble an egg, you can't unscramble an egg. And if we accidentally scramble uh, the egg, right, egg in this example being the medication, you put that into the bloodstream of a the patient, they have a reaction, you can't just control Z, right? You can't undo, you can't pull that out of an individual's bloodstream, so now you have to manage the inflammatory cascade, the, the cytokine storm, the the response um, that your body has to, to that reaction, which can be severe and significant, cause your, your heart to stop, all sorts of complications, uh, in that regard. So they're very specialized handling, training, storage requirements, how to manipulate and prepare these medications, um how to administer the medications, but then also how to monitor for the signs of a infusion reaction or worst case an adverse event. And I have completely lost track of what the other questions were in. Your oh, mind. that's
0: okay. I, I will totally get to that question in a second. but I, I you know really thank you so much for explaining it that way because, When you were going through that, particularly the part about, you know, you can't unscramble an egg as someone who, for some reason, you know, like I wasn't born with the gene to be able to crack open an egg and not, you know, break the yolk. So I really appreciated the explanation about how fragile these medications are and, and, you know, how important it is to, you know, to, to recognize that as well. But the second part of my question, uh, and, and I'd really love to get your take on this is given that, you know, they are special and that they are expensive, why are pharmacy benefit managers in the specialty pharmacy business? Why are they, you know, in your opinion, and and Julie, please feel welcome to weigh in on this this too, but like, why, why are they horning in on this? Why are they steering patients away from the doctors who, you know, prescribe and oversee treatments with these medications and why do they interfere just you know what's up with that what what are your thoughts
1: oh like from so i'll I'll answer from two perspectives so the optics pdms are trying to create is they got into specialty pharmacy because these are the most expensive drugs and their whole role is value generation and cost savings the reason they actually got into the space is Because these drugs are incredibly expensive. They're some of the most expensive drugs. And rebates are based on uh, the list price of these drugs. So the the higher the cost of the drug, the the higher the rebate value of those products, essentially. And so PBMs uh, are positioned to kind of negotiate drug formularies for for payers. Um, Particularly in the context of the specialty drug um, aspect of that formulary, it is all rebate driven. It's in that sense, PBM's role is, is kind of like the, like the legal mafia of the of the supply chain. Um, if you want your drug to get on formulary, you have to pay to play. If you don't show up with money on the table, you, you are not sitting at the table. So your drug's not on formulary. And even worse, if you have competitors that have comparable products with similar indications, similar mechanism of action, similar therapeutic category on market. well now these PBMs pit all of those manufacturers together uh, in a rebate war for preferential listing And you know PBMs are pitching this value proposition to their clients uh, and the government as like you know they're the ones that are negotiating with big Pharma to to keep these costs down and and generate all of this this value when in actuality, The the value that they're delivering is cost savings through restricted and disrupted access to these types of medications. In some cases, for people that have been clinically stable on these medications with little to no other healthcare services for, in some cases, over 10 years. Um, But then they're forced to change drugs for reasons unrelated to health or safety because the pharmacy benefit manager and the insurance company make much more money. They have a bigger spread. On the drug because of the rebates. Um, so they force their beneficiaries to, to go through those products because there's an enormous financial incentive for the PBM insurance company to do so. And unfortunately, it's rarely the best treatment option for the patient. Um, I've yet to hear an instance where an insurer or PBM preferred product uh, was, was superior in therapeutic value and benefit and uh, disease management compared to a healthcare provider prescribed treatment.
0: And that seems to be the one missing factor is that accountability because I I've never heard a story yet where a PBM getting involved particularly in a treatment protocol that is so fragile, you know as you, as you've been explaining it, I've never heard a story yet where that's actually worked. And I've also never heard anybody come back and say, "Wow, it was so
1: much cheaper." Thanks. That worked so efficiently. Thanks. It was so quick and painless, and I didn't have to coordinate between eight hundred different stakeholders.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and Julie, you were you were talking about the with your with your daughter's uh, is I want to say her her insulin pump is that right? And the test strips that that don't match, and just the mess that you've been dealing with there.
2: Right. I mean, there's a certain test strip that um, works with the um, blood glucose meter that works to calibrate this, you know, quasi closed loop system with the CGM and the insulin pump. So everything talks to each other, but the test strip that works for that blood glucose meter is not covered under the insurance. So that's another just pay cash out of pocket to circumvent the inconvenience um, that this no matter what we've done, this one test strip will get denied every time um, prior authorization. It's, it's just not, it's just not worth the headache. And Brian bought, brought up so many good points. I mean, yesterday and today, I've thought about so many things that you said, Brian, and one of the points about the specialty drugs and, and the value that is really maybe not there monetarily um, and is given back to the plans, in, or at least the PBM, and allegedly to the plans um, through the rebate system is yesterday, uh, I had a box of my daughter's Enbrel, and I actually brought the cardboard box and the styrofoam, all the packaging that the Enbrel is um, shipped to us in, and despite it supposedly needing a signature, and, and this is just under... manufactured suggested retail price a month, sometimes closer to eight, depending on who you talk to. But that box will get left at the front door. And it blows my mind. And I, I realized a long time ago about some of the prescriptions that there is no way If these prescriptions truly have a monetary value of that much, and I realize that that's a dollar figure that is transactional in the marketplace, but who in their right mind would leave a six, eight, $10,000 diamond ring at someone's front door without a signature, no lockbox, no nothing. And this happens hundreds of thousands of times a day from different delivery modes across the country. So when you start thinking of those numbers and you realize, gosh, the, the numbers, the astronomical numbers that we're talking about, like Brian said, with some of these specialty medications, I think it to have the PDM often own the specialty pharmacy that patients are steered to, all of those dollars are, are kept in house to where It's a self enrichment and self perpetuating marketplace. And as more and more drugs in the pipeline um, are, we're looking at, uh, I mean, we're looking at, you know, an average cost of about $30,000 a year for the drugs that are in the pipeline now. So some of these things are, we need to have some frank conversations. And I don't see, any better advocacy alliance than the patients, pharmacists, and physicians working together to have a a unified voice and and bring some of these um, points uh, into into the light in full transparency. And I did want to say something funny that I thought about since yesterday was, I remember that a lot of ladies' magazines, once or twice about this time of year, will say something of, you know, gosh, and 2022, the value that a stay-at-home mom or a working mom brings to the household. And they'll price out the soccer mom drives, the the cooking, the cleaning, all of these like stereotypical motherly duties uh, that go um, unreimbursed in the household. But you know, some people will just for fun, add an economic value onto that. And the last one I saw was close to $150,000 a year. So, um, I think that that's what a lot of PBMs are putting out into the marketplaces. We're saving you, um, you know, tens of thousand dollars a year or 10, 10, I guess about $10,000 a year per patient is what they claim by managing, but in all actuality, we know that those values are are skewed. So it's, it goes along to say that, you know, if, if mom's work and, and free labor in the home is saving the family $150,000 a year, that's what, something kind of funny pun to look at.
0: That's a really yeah, good I mean, way of looking at,
1: it, at <laughs> kind, of <breaking laughs> kind of play off of, off of that piece. Yeah. So I mean, just a hypothetical example, right? Of this this PBM purported value generation and cost savings. Right? So let's say, yeah, it's to Julie's point, Kate, taking that example. It's it's ten thousand dollars, right, a, a year. We'll say hypothetically for this patient to get this medication. Well, if we just deny that medication, we say ten thousand dollars per patient per year, right? Um, for that product, right, across the board. Um, what they're what they're not including in that. Um, financial impacts calculation estimate is the cost that's being shifted because those patients are being under managed. Julie mentioned the the biopharmaceutical research and development pipeline. It it grows richer and richer almost by the day because these medications are so effective at managing disease that was difficult or impossible to treat with conventional care. And there is a clear shift in R&D investment across the biopharmaceutical industry, in these types of medications, in this science, because it is the future of healthcare. It's the future of complex chronic disease management because we can pivot these patients away from a disease or a sickness management paradigm, just managing the burden of that unmanaged or undermanaged disease progression in the most expensive care settings, the emergency room, often a medical emergency requiring hospitalizations. You're getting inpatient care as well. When patients can get the right drug at the right time in a cost-effective setting to manage, to disrupt and manage that disease progression, they can pivot to a wellness management paradigm with a medical benefit drug and little to no reliance on healthcare, which has made incredible impacts in the lives of millions of people. You, you rewind 25 years ago, you go to you know, DC, Capitol Hill, right? Because you know, Julie mentioned your daughter has, has rheumatoid arthritis or RA. There was a rheumatoid arthritis rally. You would be in an army of wheelchairs out in front of the, the Capitol, going down the halls of the Capitol. You fast forward to, to today and these biologic drugs have kept so many people away from disability, um, keeping people productive and being able to work with their kids, right? 34-year-old woman with severe RA that can actually button her own shirt now and can get dressed in the morning without without help from a from a family member or a friend. And that's that is crazy impact to people's lives that that isn't being included in this, this value generation and cost savings uh projections. But really, they're just looking at immediate term cost savings and they're not looking at how heavily those immediate-term cost savings are outweighed by the long-term cost implications of, of under-managing very high-burden
0: And I think that was the point that kept coming through over and over and over in the discussion that we had here in Phoenix, Arizona yesterday, and that I hope we can carry forward across the country. That There's enormous value in keeping people well or, or helping them to heal so that they can start, you know, to manage themselves. Some of the stories we were hearing, some of the things we've been talking about today about how, you know, it's, it's, it's better and more lucrative for certain organizations to just, you know, have, let's just say mismatched diabetes uh, test strips, or, you know, to, to recommend surgeries over you know, medications that can help. And, and you know, when you begin to look at that, it, it's like really let that sink in. It's really jarring, don't you think?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's an incredible talking point, Monique, for the your audience members to take to their elected officials, especially their state representatives and state senators, because we're seeing such a shift in um, state regulations and and really a willingness among kind of very, you know, more business friendly um, legislatures across the country that historically um, have not really been willing to look at uh, any kind of PBM regulation, which is kind of a, you know, a dirty word in many state houses, but we've really seen the needle move here in Arizona with, um, and even yesterday, was another great example of willingness of uh, lawmakers to take that purview that you um, just explained so well and say, wait a second, what a value add to the community. We keep bodies in seats at the job. We keep families together. We keep them from going bankrupt. Um, We have uh, more longevity. Uh, That's a a taxpayer for another decade or two of his or her life. So it's an incredible opportunity for all of the advocates and for us to work again together to find a way to frame a lot of those talking points um, that are relevant to the lawmakers. I I can...
1: agree more i mean we just we look at how well received the other side of the story was by legislators yesterday um that's that's just what we have to do is amplify the the perspective of the people that are getting screwed by the system because of all the the hurdles and obstacles that pbms and insurance are are putting between patients clinicians and you know getting the right treatment at the right time so maybe maybe it'd be helpful if we sort of took some of these hypothetical examples, threw some stats on top of them for, for your listenership, if that's even a word, um, to kind of take to some of their, their decision makers and elected officials. So we still, we stick with rheumatoid arthritis as, a, as an example, right? And a patient with RA requires $10,000 medication every year. Well, research has shown that under-managed patients with rheumatoid arthritis cost over twice as much as those that are effectively managed because the two main drivers are over 2x increase in physician outpatient services. So they're seeing their primary care doc more frequently, their specialist more frequently, getting a lot of outpatient diagnostics as well. And the other driver is a 3x increase in hospital service consumption. So they're consuming even more services than they were in the physician setting and the outpatient setting than they are in the hospital setting at the most expensive Rates, and so if it costs hundred thousand dollars to effectively manage an RA patient every year, ten thousand of that cost is the drug alone. Well, if if I'm a PBM, right, I I can save ten thousand dollars on this patient just by denying their drug or making it impossible for them to actually get it, whether it's cost prohibitive or what. So that's what they're that's what they're putting out. What we need to highlight is the fact that, wait, time out, time out. The savings is actually negative here. You, you deny a $10,000 drug, and that patient goes from costing $100,000 a year to, to $200,000 a year, minimum. Well, I'm, I fail to see where these savings are, actually, PBM, but if you could provide some data, a little transparency to show us that you are actually creating value and cost savings that are helping people as opposed to driving profits over patients, then we could maybe get somewhere. I think the accountability I have yet, is in extremely eight years important. seen any such data. I worked at a state ledge for, for a session and BBM nor insurance lobbies were ever able to produce data um, that supported this this claim of incredible value and cost savings. Sorry.
0: No, I I think you're, I think you're spot on. I've had the exact same experience. I, it seems like if you, if we're going to ask for anything, and I I think this is a good place for us to start to wind this conversation down, which by the way, I hate to do because we're really starting to get into some of the, the deep, you know, issues and problems. So I, I really would love for both of you to come back sooner rather than later so that we can continue this conversation. Just going to, you know, plant that little seed with both of you right now. But as we look at that, you know, how do we bring accountability? Because I've also been in stakeholder meetings where, you know, they'll they'll throw out numbers, but they're they're out of context. It'll be something like, well, how does $980 uh, an employee sound? And, and it's like, well, it sounds great, except, you know, how does... $30,000 a month in rebate checks that you're cutting back to the patient's employer sound? What if they didn't, what if the patients just got the benefit of at least some of those rebates? Those are the kinds of things. And that's just one topic. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, we're working. I know you guys are working and we're working on trying to help the the greater public understand just how very Unnecessarily complicated and very, very lucrative, it's become for a small subset of organizations inside a much greater healthcare system.
1: I think we can do it. It's just going to take collaboration, intention, strategy, diligence, and a whole lot of grit.
0: Amen. <laughs> very true.
2: Well, you know, I've always had the uh, motto: "Is I, I want to be one of those people with a seat at the table." So. Um, whatever we can do to strategize together and uh, help each other out and keep this uh, labor and cost shifting that the PBMs are placing on um, physicians and, and pharmacists. And then the burden ultimately on patients. I'm ready guys.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, we just, we have to have a seat at the table period. Um, yep. Cause if, if we don't have a seat at the table, we are on the menu.
2: And I I always say, just show up when people ask, well, how do you get a seat
0: at the table? Show up,
1: show up, make noise, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Just be the squeakiest wheel.
0: There we go. That's perfect. I would have asked you for what advice you have to give. I usually will do that with our guests, but you've already done that. Thank you both so much. It's been a real pleasure having here. Brian Nyquist, Julie Hoffman, please, please come back. I cannot be more excited that the two of you are here in this part of the country where I am. And just for other people in other parts of the country who might want to tap into your wisdom and knowledge, what is the the best place for for people to reach? I'm guessing, Brian, they could contact you through one of the websites for your organizations?
1: Yeah. So um, the Infusion Access Foundation can be found at patientaccess.org. Or the National Infusion Center Association at infusioncenter.org. Perfect.
0: Thank you. And Julie, do you have a place that Um, well
2: they can just get a hold of you and we will work it out together? Okay. Perfect. Yes.
0: Anyone who wants to speak with Julie, and I I highly recommend contacting her, uh, just reach me through my email, Monique, M-O-N-I-Q-U-E, at truthrx.org. Thank you both so much for your time and for being here today. And for everyone who's listening to the podcast, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your feedback. Please send us your thoughts or leave us a message. Uh, Until next time, this is the podcast.